Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. It is Friday. That means we're coming at you with another episode of our Revelation Questions. And uh, just as a reminder, the messages for these questions every week are on Wednesday nights. You can be there live if you're in Oklahoma City at Crossings Community Church. Or you can watch these lessons online, live streamed or after the fact at crossings.church. And we're going to put a link that will take you directly there in the show notes on this podcast. So you'll hear the main lesson and then you have a little Q&A each Friday here on our podcast. So we're getting more questions, which is good. Uh, each week, we're getting a few more questions. Uh, these were questions that you had, or at least a couple of them that you had and didn't have time to get to, which is really one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast is sometimes when you're in exactly. the middle of a lesson, it's just too far afield, too much involved to answer a big question like these. And so having a little extra time and space in the podcast is a great way to get to uh, talk about these. But I like for some of our listeners who haven't listened to the lessons, they just want the controversy. They just want the question and answer. Give us the highlights of your lesson this week. This week, we did the second part of the letters to the seven churches. So basically, chapters two in, in the book of Revelation are Jesus speaking to John, saying, write these words to the angels of these seven churches. And people tend to look at this and say, wow, seven is a unique number. That's got to that's got to mean more than just seven churches. It's the number of wholeness or completeness. And some people think that it's written to seven types of churches, and every church of all time fits into one of these seven types. Other people think, now maybe it's a roadmap that the church from the coming of Christ to the return of Christ, maybe it goes through seven phases, and that's what these are. And it's possible that it's letters to seven churches that are eternally applicable to us. But however you look at it, we've been looking at what did Jesus have to say to those churches and what does that say to us? And so in our last lesson, we did the second part. We did the, the four remaining churches in chapter three. Well, we've got a couple of good questions about the symbols that are in those letters. The first one actually is a question from... The previous week that we just we got it after we had recorded the podcast, but it's a great question. So going back to chapter two, verse 11, at the end of the letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What what is the second death that's being referred to here? This is a great question. It also happens to be a question that the text of Revelation will answer for us. So we can be pretty certain about the answer to this. Let me preface it by saying, I think we all know what the first death is, and that is each of us will die a physical mortal death. But here's how I'd like you to think about it. Our death is effectively our separation from this physical mortal world. And we do not cease to exist. We are beings that exist beyond these bodies that we have, but we do depart and we are separated from this world. So that is the first death. What is the second death that then that he's talking about? This must be something that happens after our physical bodies die, after our death. And indeed it is. I want to go to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, verse 6. So we are now 
after the whole tribulation or after judgment. We've, uh, you know, we're into the millennium in chapter 20, but there's a reference and an explanation in chapter 20 and 21 of what is the second death. So chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. In other words, these are righteous people that are raised to be with Jesus. Over those people, the second death has no power, but they will be priests with God forever. Let me move to verse 14. We get a little more insight. Chapter 20, verse 14. At the end of the judgment period, it says, even death and hell, or Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, death itself is no more. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you get the idea now that the second death is a much greater separation, not from your body, but eternally from God. One last passage, Galatian chapter 21, verse 8. It says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, he's talking here about those who are rebellious against God, and their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire, which is the second death. So I think we can look at those passages and we can pretty safely say that the second death is the eternal separation from God where everyone will die the first death, but some will live with God forever and others will be separated from God forever. In fact, I'm reminded of a passage, Jesus sort of forecast this back in Matthew chapter 10. He said this, he said, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body, talking to Christians who are going to undergo persecution, but that's all they can do. In other words, they can kill your body, the first death, if you will, but that's all they can do. They said, instead, you need to please the one who can destroy body and soul. In other words, God is the one you need to please, not these people that are trying to oppress you. So second death is talking about that eternal separation from God. That's a great answer from the whole book, giving that perspective at the beginning and the end. And it's amazing how much the letters at the beginning forecast what's going to be talked about later in the book. Um, We're going to get another specific question about the letters here in Uh, chapter 2, verse 20. This is in the letter to the church at Thyatira. And he's talking about Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is a great question because this person points out Paul also has a conversation about food sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul seems to say there that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols here, one of the charges against Jezebel is she is teaching people to eat food, sacrificed to idols, and that's a bad thing. So the question is, was Paul wrong? Is there a discrepancy here? How? What should we do about food sacrificed to idols? That's a great question. So let's talk about, uh, I'm just going to frame this up based on everything in the New Testament, uh, first, including 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll go there in a second. But this phrase, and you'll see when I read 1 Corinthians 8, the phrase food sacrificed to idols can mean things. And here's what I mean by that. You could go to the meat market 
and you could buy beef. And it turns out that that the day before that was sacrificed to an idol and they don't sacrifice the whole animal. They would sacrifice a part of it. And then the priests of Zeus or whatever temple it was sacrificed at would take some of the best cuts of meat and they'd go sell it. And that's how they made money. So one way to eating meat sacrificed to idol, you might not even know you were doing it. And so you could just go buy meat and that's part of a sacrifice that was made. So that's one way. Another way, which is what Paul's actually talking, uh, is going to bring up for us, is you could actually go to the temple. And when they had sacrifices, particularly when the trade guilds, you know, when your union meeting was there, they would make a sacrifice and they'd have a big barbecue and everybody would sit down and eat. And it was a business function, but it was also a religious function because every trade guild or every, think about it kind of like a union today, they would have patron gods or goddesses. And so you might sit there at the union meeting, trade guild meeting, and you would be eating this meat right after it's been sacrificed to an idol. Well, that's a little bit more obvious that you're, in some sense, participating. And then finally, the third sense would be, and this is what's happening in uh, the book of Revelation, and this is what Jezebel is saying. Jezebel is going even further than that. Jezebel is saying, you can be a Christian. And you can go participate in all these rites. And the reason that was an appealing message is, well, you want to fit in. You want to be able to get jobs down at the union local. You don't want to be ostracized. And it's okay. You can act, you know, Zeus is not even a real God. Go over there, worship Zeus, eat the food, you know, bow down to Zeus, give him a sacrifice. It doesn't really matter. And so you can look like you're uh, serving Zeus and you can still serve Jesus. So you see the three different categories. Well, hold that thought. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. In verse 4, this is what Paul says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol isn't real, and there is only one God. He said, so the questioner saying, well, based on that, then why wouldn't it be okay? Is Jezebel really telling you to do anything wrong? Well, let's go on a little bit. And I want to read verses seven through the end of the chapter. Listen to how Paul explains that a little more. He says, however, not everybody knows this. Some, because they used to be worshiping these idols, when they eat that, they really eat it as though it's an act of worship, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, food is not going to commend us to God, but take care that this freedom that you have doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak, meaning the person who a week ago was serving Zeus and became a Christian. He's says, for if anyone sees you as this superior knowledge and you're eating in an idol's temple, you think he would be cursed if his conscience is weak to do the same? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is being destroyed. This is the brother for whom Christ died. He goes on and he said, therefore, if food will hurt the conscience of my brother, I will never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. So that's hyperbole. What he's saying is, even though you could go buy that meat, bring it home, cook it, it, it isn't, there's nothing to it. But if you go to the guild meeting and you're eating and you go, actually, I don't really believe in Zeus. I'm just not going to say anything. What does that say to the young believers? 
And certainly, Je- what Jezebel is saying is, actually, you could even go ahead and worship if you want. Uh, go ahead and go along, get along. Jesus isn't going to mind. Well, it turns out Jesus does for two reasons. One, you can't serve Zeus and serve Jesus. And perhaps what Paul is saying is even maybe more dangerous, and that is you need to be careful that there are younger believers who could really be led back into idolatry, and who wants to be responsible for that. So I don't think Paul and Jesus are saying anything different here. I think Jesus would agree. There are no other gods. This food is okay. But when you go sit down in these idols' temples, the Christians think you're worshiping that God, and don't tell them it's okay to go do those those things. So I think that's probably what's going on here. Cole, would you clarify that or add anything to that explanation? Now that seems to be exactly the difference that clarifies, you know, you're not getting two different commands. You really have an instance of two different kinds of um, religious overlap, one of which causes you to participate in something. The other, all you're doing is get getting discounted prices on meat because it was sacrificed to idols uh, before. Right. right. So <clears throat> there doesn't, there doesn't appear to be a contradiction between these two, which we always, we always start with that premise uh, because we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the whole Bible through different authors. Um, and usually if you start with that premise, you can figure out how to mediate between two things in, in the Bible. I think that's this is a great example of doing that. The last yeah, question. I'd also add, if I could add one other thing, though, you, what you don't see is you don't see Paul going into idol temples and saying, hey, by the way, Christians, feel free to come on over and do this. But by no means. His thought was, that would give some credence to the fact that someone might actually think I believed in this. And so I, I think that to me, that's a really compelling difference. The other thing is Jezebel is basically saying, by the way, not only can you go over there and eat that food, you can participate in the orgies that happened over there and the sexual immorality. And so you can see that what Jezebel is suggesting is more of a, you can have more than one God. Whereas what Paul is saying is there really aren't more than one God, but you need to be careful because we have some new converts that don't understand this very well. Right. The last question is really a theological question. It has to do with the end of the letter to Sardis. This is in chapter three, verse five. It says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And uh, this is one that you started to answer but didn't have enough time. Uh, Effectively, this question is getting to what do you mean blot your name out of the book of life? It was in and then you're out. You get in, you're saved, you're out. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? What's going on with this question? This is a very good question. You're right. I really want to answer this question, but you can't do it in just a couple of minutes. So first, let me say, what is the book of life? And it actually shows up further back than you might think. So the first uh, mention, to my knowledge, is in Exodus chapter 32. So we're all the way back to when Moses has led the people out of Egypt and they make the golden calf while he's up getting the 10 commandments he comes down and God said okay 
uh, I'm destroying these people. These people can't even stay faithful, even after what they've seen me do. And one of the things Moses says in Exodus 32, he basically says, you know, then blot my name out of the book of life. In other words, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. He says, no. He says, I just want to destroy them. And Moses says, no, I, I want you to please have mercy on these people. And uh, God says, whoever sins against me, I will blot out his name from the book of life. And so there, there is the idea of the book of life. And, you know, he spares the Israelites and he they repent and he forgives them and, and off they go. But that's a mention of the book of life. So there is in some sense a marking or a listing or let me put it a better way. God knows those who are his, those who serve him. So you see it all the way back in Exodus. Fast forward several hundred years, you also see a mention of this in the book of Daniel. And Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 12, it says, those will be delivered whose names are written in the book of life. And so again, the idea, and you start to get the idea that the book of life must mean, to have your name in the book of life means you are saved, meaning you are in a right relationship with God. And if your name is not in the book of life, then you are not in a right relationship with God and you are subject uh, to judgment. Moving into the New Testament, Jesus mentions this in Luke chapter 10. He refers and he says, I don't want you to rejoice that you have powers over demons. You guys are revved about this. I'll tell you what you need to really rejoice about is that your names are written in the book of life. In other words, that you have eternal life with God because you're in a right relationship with him. You'll see a mention of this in Philippians and Hebrews, and I won't go into that. I just want you to know that this idea of the book of life shows up a number of places. And then finally, in Revelation 21, I want to add this because it's in the book of, of Revelation as well. It's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. I'm talking about the New Jerusalem. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that makes a lot of sense to us because the only way you have eternal life is because of Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb who was sacrificed for us, who reconciles us to God. So answer to the first question is, what is the book of life? It is a way of talking about those who are reconciled to God. So then the question becomes, well, can you be in the book of life? Can you be a Christ? I'm going to use some uh, some synonyms here. Can you be a Christ follower? And can your name then be blotted out? Can you no longer be a Christ follower? I would say, uh, and this may or may not be popular to people, but on the face of it, this particular passage would indicate, yes, in fact, you can. In fact, I want to cast a little farther net, and I want to go to Matthew 10, 22, where Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. So if you think about salvation as I walked the aisle when I was, you know, 16 years old, and no matter whatever happens in my life, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm afraid that this passage and what Jesus said about persevering and endurance to the end is going to be a problem for that point of view. Also, Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, if you remember some of the seed hit the thin soil and it shoots up. I mean, you actually get a plant comes up and it's so eager and so excited. 
But when persecution comes, it falls away, which is a way of saying, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. This cost is too much. I'm going to go back to following the gods of the world. So overall, and I'll just stop there, but overall, the sense of the New Testament is that you can follow Christ and you can fall away. I'm going to explicitly not use the language of losing your salvation as far too misleading. What you see happening here is people who are persecuted who fall away. Where you see this happening uh, at Sardis is you, in Sardis, you have a lot of people that are not faithful. They've soiled their clothes. And we talked in class that that means their deeds are not righteous. They're not following Christ. He says, but there are some of you who are, and I'll give you white clothes, meaning you are following me, you are obeying me, you are repentant, you are forgiven. He says, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life. In other words, you are assured uh, of that salvation. So uh, the preponderance of all the evidence would indicate to me that, yes, obviously, one's name can be blotted out of the book of life. Now, here's the interesting question. Why? Is it because I sinned one day? Uh, I just did something wrong. I could just lose my salvation, so to speak. There's nothing in the scripture that talks about that. Maybe I just don't behave well enough. Your behavior is not what, <laughs> if not what guarantees your salvation, it's not what got you saved, and it's not what gets you unsaved. It's not just your behavior. It's, are you following Christ? It is the condition of your heart. And that is not going to change because God wills it to change. If you remember in our lesson in the uh, book, the letter to Laodicea, Jesus said, look, you guys, none of you are following me, but I'm still here knocking on the door. And if you will open that door, I will take you back and I will, will have you. So you can't lose your salvation, but it does appear that you can uh, fall away. Now, different points of view handle this a little differently. And one would be that if you fall away, if you don't persevere, then you never had that saving faith. And perhaps some of you have heard that before. And I don't quibble with that, uh, that you weren't regenerated, that it was uh, you didn't have saving faith in Christ in the first place. But however you look at it, to just specifically answer this question, the preponderance of Scripture says to me that, yes, you can indeed change your allegiance from Christ. You don't lose it. Uh, you, you simply pull the plug on your own life support, if you want to think about it that way, that Jesus Christ is our link to eternal life, and I cut that link. So this is a difficult one, not difficult to understand. The scripture is pretty clear about it. It's just not one that's comfortable for us to hear. Yeah, that's wading in some pretty deep theological waters there. But it's a question you get asked a lot. Uh, you know, can, can somebody that was saved now not be saved anymore? Or um, what would it take to lose your salvation? Or like you said, not not to lose your salvation, but to change your allegiance. And uh, you certainly see in the book of Revelation, there's a sense that certainty about being part of God's people is one of the highest priorities in the book. And what's it going to take to do that? Well, persevering to the end is the thing. The people who wait, the people who suffer, the people who endure, the one who conquers is the one who is going to be saved in the end. 
and there are definitely different views on how how that happens. And I guess I'd put a, a bit of a bow on this, and you can ask follow-up questions if you'd like, but I'd put a bow on it by saying this. Christ will never let go of you. But according to the book of Revelation and the New Testament, there do seem to be cases where we might willingly let, let, let go of Christ. We might fall away and chase other gods. But I want you to know, Christ is never going to fall fall away from us, and Christ is never going to give up on us. Yeah, I'd, I'd offer a different theological view of this, although I think this is a difficult text. Uh, this is certainly a good text for the you-can-lose-your-salvation crowd uh, interpreted that way. I, I think what's interesting here is if you think about Revelation is written by John, <clears throat> which is the same John that wrote the gospel. And the gospel of John is where you would go for a very robust, you cannot lose your salvation. So Jesus right. teaching in the gospel of John, that, that John includes in his gospel, that are that is not in some of the other gospels, is when Jesus says things like, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or Jesus says, uh, it, is, it has been given to me by God not to lose a single one that comes to me. Everyone who comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. I won't lose a single one. That's chapter 6 of John. Chapter 10, right. no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, right. Those who have been entrusted by the Father to the Son, he does not lose a single one which I think you would agree with in what you just said, uh, because yes. at that point, what you're saying is, it's not that Jesus loses them, it's that they opt out at some point, and they they change their mind. The hard part yeah, well, about you that... You see a lot of evidence, uh, but you do see a lot of evidence in, this, in the letters for that, too, as Paul talking about some have turned away and chased after this world. And, uh, I mean, you, you just see these references to the idea... Not that Jesus left them, but that they, I hate to say it this way, but that they left Christ. But go ahead with what you were going to say, because I want to well, contrast I that, kind of an... I don't know that those passages in Paul are saying that those people have lost their salvation that they once had. I think probably it's more similar when John, in First John, says they went out from us, but they were not of us. That would be kind of the standard. Right. They proved, by not enduring to the end, they proved that they never were truly saved. To begin with, and because only those who persevere to the end are truly saved. So you 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 have the view of well, it it all depends on how where you end. That is, and that and both people kind of agree on that. One of them would be if you're not currently following Christ, then you have no share in Christ. But you might have earlier. You might have trusted in Him earlier, and if you had died, then you would have been saved. Versus, <clears throat> no, if you're not trusting in Him now then it proves that you never really had trusted him before. And the reason for that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So if you are in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. <laughs> so then mm -hmm. how all of a sudden have you been uncreated back into the old person again when you decided not to put your trust in Christ anymore? That That's the position that people would take and say, no, 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 you can't lose it. If you're really in Christ, you're recreated. The Spirit is indwelling. That cannot be undone. And to take that position, to look at this text, it, it brings a different light to the way that you would read this. So instead of saying, it, it basically this passage says, uh, 
the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So at the end of all the letters in, in, in to the seven churches, there is a positive reward for the one that conquers. So here the positive mm-hmm. reward is uh, this person will be clothed in white garments, and they, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres to the end, will never have their name blotted out of the book of life. So it's right. a promise that if you persevere to the end, God will remain true in all of his promises to you forever. You will be with him forever. There's no chance that God will ever turn his back on you. It would be odd that the other six letters are all things about the person who does conquer to then turn around and say that this one applies to the person who doesn't conquer. So to those who conquer, you get a white garment and I will never blot you out of the book of life, like I'm going to do to the other people that don't persevere to the end. I, I read this more as if you conquer, you will receive the white garment and you can trust that your name will never, ever be blotted out of the book of life. You are in when you're in, you're always in and it will remain that way for eternity, reading that more of a positive promise to the person who conquers. So that's a different view, different theological view and a different textual view of that text. But the interesting thing is, at the end of the day, this passage and the ones that we've brought up in Paul and in John are crystal clear. The best test for whether or not someone is saved, are you currently following Christ? Are you currently trusting in Christ? Are you currently living like you have been born again? And if that's the case, you should never have any doubt about where you are with God. But if you're not following him, we can parse things theologically about what might have happened or what the explanation is for that. But the result is you need to turn and trust in Christ. No matter if you trusted him before or not, that's what you need to do in that situation. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, from a pragmatic term, that's exactly right. If you are not trusting Christ or more accurately, what usually happens is you have a loved one who does not appear to be living a life that is a life that follows Christ is that's one that we need to pray about. That's one we need to intervene if we can. We need to entreat. We need to encourage people to turn back to Christ. From a theological point of view, uh, which I agree is less important than the real real life piece of it, which is pretty straightforward. You do have the idea of if you are truly saved, you will persevere. And I'm comfortable with that point of view. There are, however, uh, people who don't hold to that. Uh, that's not the way they understand salvation. And if that's the case, then I think you do have to grapple with this idea of can you then be blotted out of the book of life? Can you, who sort of opted in, can you opt out? But that's a theological dispute. I agree with you. When you get right down to it, the question is what it's always is. Have you placed your trust in Christ? Are you following Jesus Christ? Not are you following him perfectly? Not are you how far along are you on the road? The question is, are you following Jesus Christ? And from a pragmatic point of view, that's what matters. Well, and I think this is a a, a great, a good model of uh, where you place theological disagreements. I wouldn't consider this a salvation issue, but even the two of us seeing this differently agree on what you should practically and pastorally do in a situation like this, which is often the way it works with second and third level theological issues. You can just go back to our 
episode on the difficult text of Romans chapter 9 and listened to three different views on how to interpret that passage and election, perseverance, and all those things wrapped up there. Right. Uh, and at the end of that, realize, well, y- y- there are big differences here and there are theological disagreements here. Um, which we can be comfortable with because we know how to put this into practice, regardless of what our our theological differences are on this. And I would put this passage in the same category. The message of Revelation is overwhelmingly he who conquers, the one who perseveres to the end. Right. And uh, whether you can lose your salvation is an interesting uh, question. I think we have slightly differing views on how to read this verse because of it, but we're pretty much in agreement that the message is coming through loud and clear. Well, the, the letters to the churches are overwhelmingly give you a, an undisputable, no matter what your theological point of view is, that is trouble is going to happen. Remain faithful to Christ, even through the troubles. And when you conquer, you will have eternal life. You won't be subject to the second death. You won't be blotted out of the book of life. In other words, none of these negative things can happen because your God is powerful enough to preserve you through the trials. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.